came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Every time that flag's unfurled, they come to America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We're here to give you an update what happened during the week and what's going to happen in the following weeks. With us today is Mario Konomo with his usual report on what's going on in Europe. Dr. Peter Michalos, how to live longer. Dr. Ben Carson, he is concerned about freedom of speech. Representative Bob Whitman from Texas, he is, uh, doesn't like what's going on with the border. Dick Morris, well, who knows what Dick Morris is going to say. Let's start off with Admiral James DeVritis, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for four years. He is one knowledgeable person. Good morning, Admiral. How are you this morning? Doing great, John. Tell us, uh, uh, there's so many things going on uh, in the world. Where would you like to start this morning? John, I think we should talk about Ukraine and what's going on with the recent decision by NATO and the United States to send tanks to help the Ukrainians. And and uh, they're, they're sending, I know uh, Poland is sending tanks, Germany is sending tanks, the United States is sending tanks. Uh, and uh, do you think that uh, that's going to... Uh, uh, help in in uh, getting to a solution. I mean, and, and uh, Putin is taking the position that he's no longer fighting the Ukraine. He's fighting NATO. What say you? I think he is really trying to frighten the West, to frighten NATO, to act as though somehow we have uh, escalated the situation. I really don't think that's the case. Uh, we've chosen to send. Uh, three principal kinds of tanks there, we, the West. So it'll be the U.S. sending the Abrams A1 tanks. These are very big, very capable, but they're harder to maintain. Perhaps more importantly, the Germans and the Poles and the Latvians, Lithuanians and Estonians are all going to send Leopard 2 tanks. These are made by Germany. They're almost as capable as those Abrams U.S. tanks, but there'll be a pretty good group of those. And then finally, the British are sending what are called Challenger tanks. So, John, when you put these three types of tanks together and you bring them in real numbers into Ukraine, and I would estimate there'll be at least 100, maybe as many as 200 by mid-spring, call it the end of March, um, that creates real problems for Putin, and I'll tell you why. It's because Putin has his forces stretched out along a very long front, probably 400, 600 miles that runs from Russia itself in the north all the way down along the line of the Black Sea to Crimea. And Putin has those forces completely stretched out. So, John, with these tanks, the Ukrainians can mask that armor and use it to punch through 
the Russian lines, separate them, peel them apart, break their logistics chain. It'll really reduce the ability of Russia to continue what it wants to do, which is to ramp up offensive operations. So this is a very pivotal moment in the land war in Ukraine. And I think it's a bad day in the Kremlin when he sees the tanks themselves. And and I'll close on this, John, but it's also a bad day in the Kremlin because he sees the unity of the West. Um, This started as a kind of an active conversation back and forth, U.S., Germany, Germans saying, well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Ultimately, though, um, all of the nations of NATO have pulled together and are sending these tanks. So it's a strong political and diplomatic signal. And as I said earlier, it's a very important military step for the alliance. Now, we talk about the NATO alliance is very strong right now. We're, We're very united. What is the the theoretical uh, Russian, Chinese, uh, and any other countries' alliance? How are they doing on their end? At this moment, John, I would say the real alliance to watch is Russia and Iran. Those two are drawing closer and closer together, and the Iranians have the ability to provide additional weapons to the Russians. They can send drones. They can send Uh, cruise missiles. The Iranians have a lot of capability. They've become very, very close to uh, Putin. In terms of Russia, China, I think China is ambivalent about Russia's actions in Ukraine. I don't think China is going to provide material aid of a significant nature to Russia, but certainly Iran will. And the other uh, nation to watch in this context is North Korea. North Korea is committed to sending artillery rounds. They've even talked about sending troops to uh, support the Russians. So I think it's really a triangle of pariah nations being Russia, Iran, and North Korea. China is biding their time. They're watching from the sidelines. Uh, It's the other three that are drawing closer together and uh, will continue to prosecute this war in Ukraine. Pakistan and Turkey, where does that lie? Let's start with Turkey. Um, Turkey is becoming more and more of a problem within the NATO alliance. And in particular, at this moment, out of the 30 nations in NATO, only one nation is standing in the way of bringing Sweden and Finland into the alliance. We really want the Swedes and the Finns to come into the NATO alliance. They bring uh, real capability, both technology, uh, troops. The Finns in particular can mobilize hundreds of thousands of troops. They have a very advanced conscription and reserve system, so they bring real ground combat power. The Swedes have immense technological capability. They built, for example, the Gripen fighter, which is as good as the U.S. Navy's Hornet. So we really want those two nations in. 29 of 30 countries have said yes. One nation is standing against that, and it is Erdogan's Turkey. So I think at the moment, the alliance is willing to give Erdogan a couple more months because he has an election coming up in May. But I think after that election, the pressure rightfully is going to be immense 
on Turkey to acquiesce in the addition of Sweden and Finland to the alliance. One other important question in the world economy, and this is just your opinion, uh, you know, uh, at one point, Saudi Arabia and Russia were very closely aligned on keeping the price of oil up because both their economies depend on the price of oil. I mean, I'm sure Russia would like the price of oil at $100 a barrel. Meanwhile, our economy would want it at sixty-five, seventy. Uh, is there any real alliance between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Russia? The Saudis and the Russians do, in fact, uh, participate um, with the price setting of oil. And you're correct. Both very much want high oil prices. For the United States, it's a two-edged sword. Um, I think your estimate is about right. We want moderately high prices because we are, of course, a net uh, energy exporter uh, ourselves. But on the other hand, we have a, you know, a vast global economy that runs better when oil prices are in the 60 to $70 range. Um, I think for the moment, I would look for oil prices to uh, stay kind of between those two bands. And the reason is um, the global recession starting to look like it may not be as bad as many forecasters thought it was going to be. Uh, we'll see. We've seen some promising early results on the U.S. economy. China's economy is starting to pick up as they uh, remove themselves from this uh, ridiculous zero COVID policy they followed for a couple of years. So there's some green shoots in the overall sense of a coming global recession. If, if, the economy can land softly. I think that oil prices will probably stay in the mid-range, somewhere between, say, 70 and 90. That's not a bad place uh, from a global oil perspective. Thank you for your opinion. I mean, uh, my opinion was if we can get it closer to 65, 70, then inflation would go away by itself and the Fed would not have to raise uh, interest rates. That's a, a valid view, John, and let's hope um, it turns in that direction. Uh, overall, I, I think we are seeing inflation start to look slow, uh, particularly here in the United States. But let's face it, I don't envy the Fed the job of trying to bring down inflation, but having only the blunt instrument of interest rates to apply to the problem it's really tough. It's it's like trying to uh, carve a diamond with a sledgehammer, and it's gonna it's gonna take some back and forth before we land where we need to. Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for what you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. See you down in Florida, John. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to a show just focused on finding solutions. It's the Cats Roundtable. For our weekly report from Europe, we have Mario Economo, uh, who is a banker, was a banker in uh, London, uh, Zurich, and New York, the, and uh, with large money center banks. Mario, tell us what's going on in Europe. 
Yes, yeah, so good morning, Cats Roundtable. There is something that's interesting this week. Uh, it looks like there is a company that's called Intercontinental Exchange, and it will actually be opening a parallel natural gas market in London, which will allow the traders to cope with any potential disruptions caused by the EU's new rules uh, to prevent extreme uh, price swings. If you recall, the EU has put a price cap on natural gas. So this parallel exchange is going to be set up to essentially provide a, uh, a market for people that are going to look to uh, not to comply with the uh, EU blocks regulation. Uh, this is interesting, and it goes to show us shows us that uh, no matter what governments or countries say, people and markets will always find a workaround uh, against uh, limits or measures that are imposed in order to allow people to trade outside of certain uh, structures. Uh, that's one thing that's very interesting that's happening in Europe. But of course, the big news in Europe has to do with the Ukraine, and it has to do with the discussion specifically in Germany about whether or not they're going to provide tanks to the Ukrainians. Uh, this is showing a uh, rather large split in the government in Germany with the Greens adamant about wanting to provide tanks and the Social Democrats, who's essentially the party the Chancellor is from, very reluctant to do so. As of right now, it looks like they will. But the numbers that are being discussed, uh, Mr. Katsimatidis, are a joke. We're, we're talking about 14 tanks from Britain, uh, 31 from the U.S., and 14 from Germany. Uh, Poland will also be sending some tanks. Uh, if you total these number of tanks up, the number is so ridiculously low that uh, to think that these would even uh, pro uh, provide any type of a threat to the Russians is absurd. I think the reason that these tanks are being provided, uh, and because, because we are recording before Sunday, by Sunday the numbers may increase a bit, but they won't increase substantially with respect to the number of tanks, I suspect why these tanks are being provided is not to provide a deterrent to the Russians, because the reality is the Russians will take these tanks out very quickly, uh, but to show uh, the EU and NATO that NATO c remains committed to helping the Ukraine, as does the EU and the U.S. When Russia has 5,000 tanks, 100 tanks, um, I'm not sure it's going to make a big difference, but, you know, I pray for people. Uh, yes. Mario, on the economic front, the Fed is going to make a decision on raising rates again next week. How is the economy going in Europe? Okay, so the uh, European Central Bank is actually saying they will also be increasing rates. They're going to continue to be substantially more hawkish with respect to increasing rates than the U.S. Federal Reserve is. Inflation continues to be a serious problem in Europe. We know here in, in America uh, the numbers are much better than they were last year. However, in Europe, food inflation continues to be a very, very real problem. And we now know that once China... Uh, which has opened once again, uh, people start moving around and start consuming more crude uh, oil. Uh, that will essentially put pressure on uh, crude oil prices, and we expect gasoline prices to go up. That will also have an impact on further food inflation in Europe. Frankly, I don't know how the Europeans are going to get a handle on the food inflation situation. Uh, I suspect that's with us in Europe for the rest of this year and perhaps even into next year. Well, what other things are going on? Uh, uh, the the country of Turkey are they on our side? Or are they not on our side? What what's your gut feeling? 
Well, I think the way to answer that is the way you've answered it in the past. What day of the week is it? Sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. The reality is Turkey will do what's good for Turkey uh, and uh, President Erdogan will do what's right for him and his uh, party. They will have an election in mid-May. There will be some belligerent uh, uh, talk with respect to Greece uh, leading up to that. Interestingly enough, it looks like Greece itself will be having its own election somewhere between April and May as well. So the rhetoric on both sides will probably go up. I don't anticipate there will be any altercation. Of course, at the end of the day, if there is, it will be up to the U.S. to make sure it lasts literally for a few hours at best, because it's not in America's interest to have two members of NATO in its southeastern flank fighting while the war rages in the Ukraine. America is supposed to give Turkey those F-16s. You think it's going to happen? So uh, it's what I said last week. I believe America uh, will play the long game, and it knows its interests lie in keeping Turkey within the NATO alliance and within the Western world. So at some point, the U.S. will. That doesn't mean it will blindly give F-16s, modern F-16s, to Turkey. It will impose conditions on when those uh, planes can be delivered and how they can be used. But I think in the long term, yes, America will give the F-16s to Turkey. And the reality is everybody, inclusive of the Greeks, of which I am a Greek, need to realize that it's better to have Turkey in NATO and on our side than actually on the other side with Russian equipment and Russian uh, warplanes. What else would you like to report to all America? Well, I'd like to uh, raise an issue which I find deeply offensive as a Christian uh, Greek Orthodox, and that is the burning of Ukrainian Orthodox church churches in the Donbass. Uh, several churches, if you recall, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke away from the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, several Ukrainian Orthodox churches in the Donbass have said, however, they would like to remain under the Russian Patriarchate. Uh, as a result, uh, many Ukrainians have gone out and they've started burning these churches. And I find it deeply offensive that apart from the fact this is not being reported anywhere in the media to the extent that it should be, that nobody in the Christian Orthodox world is actually standing up and saying that this is unacceptable behavior by the Ukrainians, notwithstanding the fact that they uh, believe that those Ukrainian Orthodox churches should fall under the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. We have time for one more item. I just think that we need to realistically sit down and speak to the Russians. I don't think that the situation, you know, the Russians have said that if these tanks that are sent start using what are called depleted uranium shells, the Russians will deem this to be a nuclear exchange and they will respond accordingly. So obviously this is escalating to levels which is one which are once again bringing us back to the brink of a potential nuclear exchange. I think it's time and we keep saying this every week and maybe somebody somewhere will actually listen to us that we need to sit down and we need to speak to the Russians. And for those people out there who believe that Putin is the problem and if we get rid of President Putin, the situation will resolve itself, they don't seem to understand the hardliners that are around President Putin will be much more difficult and much more dangerous for us in the West than President Putin is. So it's time to get real and to sit down and to speak to the Russians, reach a conclusion with respect to this war and figure out how Everybody everywhere is going to help rebuild the Ukraine, which has been completely devastated at this point. Understood and agreed. Thank you, Mario Economo, and uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. 
With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. With us today is uh, Secretary Ben Carson, the former uh, Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, otherwise known as HUD, and uh, he has very many, a, a few concerns, and he wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Examiner, and uh, Mr. Secretary... Tell us your concerns this morning. Well, thanks for having me. It's always good to be with you. You know, I'm very concerned about freedom of speech in our country. You know, our founders very much understood the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, of having an open and honest exchange of ideas. And as they were putting the framework together for this country, they studied every other government that had ever existed in the history of the world and uh, looked at the downfalls. What, what, what were the things that were problematic and how could we avoid those same pitfalls? And uh, they worked very hard to come up with a constitution that would restrain the government because one of the things they recognize is that governments all end up the same way. They grow, they infiltrate, and they dominate. That's government. And uh, just like a lion, a lion is not a bad animal because it kills gazelles and eat them. They do that because they're lions. Well, governments do that because they're governments. And you have to have something to constrain them. And it was, I think, God inspired our Constitution. And one of the principal pillars of that Constitution, freedom of speech, and uh, freedom of expression, because when you have a plethora of ideas to discuss, you're much more likely to end up with the one that works than if you have someone saying, no, this is the way it is. And anybody who disagrees with me is a horrible person, you know, is anti-democracy, is anti-this and that. And that's what has happened traditionally with different societies. Seeing it creeping up in our society is very alarming. For instance, in, in New Jersey, you know, the legislature just passed a measure that would require uh, literacy training or media uh, training for K through 12. Who gets to decide what is legitimate information and what is misinformation because they're supposed to teach them how to identify misinformation. Well, you look at something like COVID, you know, a lot of the stuff that they said was misinformation turns out to be true. In California, coming up with legislation to control doctors that says any doctor who is guilty of spreading misinformation can lose their license. Well, boy, that's a pretty heavy stick. That's pretty heavy. Somebody's head. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and who who gets to decide what's misinformation? Who, who gets to decide if the vaccine is good or not good? Why did the federal government go to federal court uh, uh, eight months ago and say that we want we want to lock up side effects for seventy five years? Yeah, exactly. They obviously knew that there was a problem going on there, and it seems and that there, there is a problem. Now. Heart attacks are up uh, a, a alarming amount. And uh, blood clots are up an alarming amount. Yeah, strokes, all kinds of horrendous complications, way more than we've seen with any other vaccine. All the other vaccines combined don't even come up close to the complications we've had with this one. That's not to say that people... So, so the first mentality vaccine. the first mentality of the government was, let's go to federal court and hide it. I mean, you know, Washington is broken, and I think both of us agree. Well, you know, not only that, but you take something that clearly doesn't work the way they said it was supposed to, and then you mandate that people have to take it anyway or lose your job, lose your livelihood. You know, this is absolute craziness. And yet it's going to be we the people if we're going to stop this madness. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in different countries uh, lately, and they all ask me the same question. What's happened to the United States? What happened to even the French are asking? You know, if the French are asking what's wrong with you, you know you're then we're, if the French are asking, we're in deep trouble. <laughs> I understand, doctor, that m most of the students coming in from China are paid for by the Chinese government. And, and that, that means that if they're going to a school like Harvard or Penn State uh, or and they're saying, oh, we're going to send you 200 students, and that's going to mean X amount of money. Uh, that sort of uh, tilts the wheel a certain way because all these universities, it's become all about money lately. And in Washington, yeah, yeah. it's become about all about money lately, uh, where I think in, in Washington we are crossing the line, I hate to say the word, uh, of treason of some, some people committing treasonous acts against our country. You know, there are so many things that are going on now that are just rotten. And a lot of it does deal with money. The love of money is the root of all evil, as the, as the Bible says. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, because you'll do anything to get it. And that's very, very problematic. And then the other thing, the way that our government... Uh, police agencies like the FBI are colluding with big tech to control speech, to control thinking of the people. This is incredibly dangerous. I don't know if, if people are sleeping through this or what, but this is messing with the fundamental principles of freedom that this country was based upon. And if we don't stop it now, it's going to be too late. Now, that's I, what I, I agree. Meant when he said a democracy, a republic, if we can keep it. On a final note, I spoke to a, a bunch of people yesterday, and I said, maybe our country should make a decision that we should take care of the poor Americans first before we, we take care of the poor uh, Central Americans and South Americans. Well, that would make sense. I mean, when you get on an airplane, what's one of the announcements? 
in case of emergency, your, your mask will drop down. Put yours on first and then help your neighbor. Because if you don't put yours on first, you won't be able to help them. I agree. You know, we, we, we need to get our own house in order first. It doesn't mean that we can't continue to be generous and helpful to other people, but we can't do that if we're weakened and destroyed. Dr. Carson, we have many things to talk about again in the near future. Thank you for coming on this Sunday morning, and we pray for America, and we both work hard for America. Amen. Thank you for your patriotism, John. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. With us today is Congressman Rob Whitman. And uh, he is the vice chairman of the Armed Services Committee, uh, chairman of the Tactical Air and Land Forces Subcommittee, and uh, one smart congressman. Uh, congressman uh, Whitman, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. This is your first time on our show. Uh, and uh, tell us what you would like to accomplish. Absolutely, John. Well, listen, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. And as you point out, an honor to be there in leadership positions on the House Armed Services Committee. I represent the First Congressional District in Virginia, which has a significant military presence and also includes Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown. So we like to call it America's First District, the cradle of democracy. So very honored to be there. We have quite the challenge in front of us to make sure that we are countering the threats that we see around the world, whether it's what's happening with Russia in Ukraine or what's happening with China or, for that matter, Iran, North Korea, the challenges are many, and we have to make sure that our military is ready for those challenges. And, you know, we have to make sure we're doing the right things in the right way. Also making sure, too, that we are getting the most out of our dollar. John, I talk about the importance of the United States getting more per its dollar in what it does to defend this nation than the Chinese get per their yuan. I mean, we are the innovators and creators, and we have to, we have to do more, and we have to be more efficient in the dollars that we use. Well, I, I, we I joke around. I joke around yeah. that, uh, that for us to build the highway, one mile of highway for us, we could we could spend three million dollars to build the highway, and the Chinese can build it for probably a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it, 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 there's a, there's such differences between our economy and our labor force, uh, and, and what, what's happened now is with the uh, what's going on with the, uh, the Paris Accord and watching out for uh, uh, climate change, and the Chinese are not watching out for any climate change, the Chinese government or the Russian government. They progress at lightning speed in front of us, and, and, we're, and the United States is falling behind. What say you? Well, listen, I, I would agree. And what, what happens, John, is, is that we get so caught up in the Pentagon with process. So I, I spoke at the Reagan National Defense Forum about a month ago, and I held up a blank sheet of paper, and I said, this is what the Chinese use when they start down the road to do something, to, to build a new weapon system or to build a ship. There are no impediments there. It's not, there's nothing there where you say, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that. When you look at the Pentagon, the flow chart of what you have to do to actually make a purchase or to do acquisition is mind-boggling. An 11 by 17 sheet of paper is filled up. You can hardly read the print on there to see all the, the steps that you have to go through. The, the bureaucratic process is slowing down and making less efficient the things we need to acquire to defend this nation. So we have to set aside much of that bureaucratic impediment. We have to also make sure that we're leveraging private capital. I want to make sure that we are using 
the investments that people are making in new technologies and applying that to the military. I mean, those those things are incredibly important. The Chinese do that every day. If we're going to prevail in this, we have to do not only what the Chinese do, but we have to do it better. And we have to get more out of our dollar that is more value for our dollar than the Chinese get for their yuan. That begins with making the system in the Pentagon faster, easier, less bureaucratic, and more about getting these capabilities in the hands of our warfighters quickly and doing it less expensively. The Chinese, uh, you're in the armed services, the Chinese are a light speed ahead of us on hypermissiles that can attack our Navy. Uh, and we're left almost at a standstill, and I don't think we have much defense against it. And the United States is now saying that uh, maybe we're not going to have hyper-missiles till uh, 2025 or 26 or 27. What say you? Well, listen, our, our hypersonics program is behind where it needs to be. Now, I am, I am happy that we are working very hard to catch up. And, yes, I would love to have a hypersonic weapon in our arsenal quickly. I, I, I think that we can do it sooner than 2025. We are pushing the military to do that. We'll be having some hearings on hypersonic weapons. Another thing we need to do, too, John, is we need to increase the uncertainty. You know, you can do land-based hypersonic weapons, that is, launching something from the land. But I want to make sure that the Chinese don't know where a hypersonic weapon is coming from. And how do we do that? We put them in submarines, and we have capability to launch them in submarines. And when the Chinese don't know where our submarines are, they don't know where a hypersonic weapon would come from. That is another strong deterrent. So at the same time, we ought to be working on, and we are, working on on sea-launched or undersea-launched hypersonic weapons. We still have a much better uh, nuclear uh, submarine force than they do. Uh, And uh, I'm not saying we're going to get into a war, so I don't think we have to worry about it in the near future. I don't think the Chinese really want a war. They see the deterioration of what happened to uh, Russia. Well, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in what Russia did and really the reunification of Taiwan and China is a fait accompli that, hey, it's going to happen. Don't worry about it. You know, we don't need conflict. It's just going to happen. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, if, if that is allowed to happen, then the world as we know it will change because of the economic impact that Taiwan has around the world. They are a major producer of semiconductors. And if, and if that economy is in the hands of Xi Jinping, they're insidious in what they do. And I'm a new member of the new China Select Committee, uh, the senior Republican on the committee. And I can tell you, we're going to be looking into all the different things that China's doing against our country, whether it's fentanyl coming across the border, most of, most of which is manufactured in China, what they're doing in buying vast amounts of farmland, land near our military bases what they're doing with Confucius Institutes at our universities. I mean, at every turn, you look at what they're doing to infiltrate our society in ways that are not in our best interest. Congressman Rob Whitman, thank you so much, and have a great uh, rest of the weekend. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. With us today is Dr. Peter Michalos, our in-house genius. And, you know, he, he tells us how to live longer. And uh, today, I understand he's going to be talking about uh, how our sleep ties into our longevity. Dr. Michalos, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, John. It's great to be with the Cats Roundtable audience and studying all the science on anti-aging and the latest things that will help all of us and all our listeners live longer and uh, 
learning how to live longer using science and some of the recent literature on sleep when uh, our mothers and grandparents told us make sure you get enough sleep or get enough sleep before you are taking a test and don't do an all-nighter and all these things have a scientific basis. There was a large study done where they followed hundreds of thousands of people and they found that people who were able to sleep seven to eight hours on a regular basis had a much greater degree of longevity from all-cause mortality, and those people who slept less than five hours increased their all-risk mortality by 15%. But it does count that even if you get up like I do sometimes in the middle of the night, because as we get older, that happens. If you can go back to sleep and catch some more, a couple hours of deep sleep, then that also counts uh, towards those eight hours. So you might sometimes get up, but it does help to get that additional sleep. And as uh, you and I, John, have spoken about, sometimes we use the weekends to catch up with our sleep. And it turns out that during sleep, a lot of repair goes on, especially for those people who don't eat after eight o'clock, like we do with the intermittent fasting. When our intestine is not focused on digestion, it's focusing on something called autophagy. And autophagy is something where we, it's the garbage disposal cleanup system where our body starts going after cellular waste material and cleaning up cellular waste. And this happens to be very important with things like Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and Parkinson's. It turns out that people who sleep better have less problems with these uh, types of neurodegenerative diseases because during those sleeping hours, the garbage disposal system is focusing on doing all the cleanup. But if you have a big steak in your belly at 10 o'clock at night, you have to go after all that digestion. And outside our intestines, 75% of all our white blood cells just linger and hang around there because they're waiting around that barrier between our intestine and our bloodstream not to allow bacteria or bad things to get in. So we now know that 80% of our, our immune system is in our gut. So if we can have our gut resting, then this autophagy system is traveling around our body with these cells called T-killer cells, looking for cancer cells, looking to clean up waste and byproducts, because a lot of diseases are waste and byproduct accumulation, like macular degeneration in the eye is a waste and byproduct accumulation in the macula. Uh, amyloid proteins are waste and byproduct accumulation that occurs inside the brain. So these are all things that have been found in the centarians and the octogenarians that those who get better sleep have a better longevity. You know, we said that I, I try to catch up on weekends like a lot of people do. Does the catch up on weekends count? Let's say seven days a week, you want to get minimum seven hours, so that's 49 hours a week. If you catch up a couple hours in the weekend, does that count to the overall scheme of things? you do a lot of your repairing during the weekend. And that's why we get those afternoon naps in the, in, on the weekend. Yes, the catch-up during those catch-up period, a lot of cleanup and repair happens. And that's why cultures, like they talk about the blue zones, they like in Greece, for example, they, they sleep in the afternoon. They're napping from 12 to 3 or 12 to 4. And that extra sleep is a lot of repair and catch-up is happening during that period. So, Yes, it does. And the other thing is that the HDL 
uh, and the uh, triglyceride level were found to be much better in people who got regular sleep. The mechanisms aren't known, but it seems that when you have poor sleep, your lipid metabolism is uh, disturbed, and that can lower someone's lifespan. And the other interesting thing is the temperature at which we sleep. It's better to sleep in a cooler room around 68 degrees because that actually helps us lose weight. Because when we're not too cold but just cool, the body has to expend energy and heat from our refrigerator, usually in our midsection, as in my case. And that refrigerator is tapped into to burn energy so that you can actually lose weight during sleep by sleeping in a cooler room and you actually don't lose weight when you sleep in a hotter room and you tend to wake up more. So we're learning more and more about longevity and sleep and consuming the proper foods and tying it in also with intermittent fasting, which indirectly gives your intestine a break so that you're not having food in your stomach late at night during sleep. And instead of focusing on all your blood going to your stomach for digestion, the blood is circulating and doing a cleanup job and helping you heal. And that goes a long way towards longevity and brain health and lifespan. Dr. Peter Michalos, thank you for your tidbits. And I'm sure it helps all all our listeners and all our Americans. And, and uh, God bless you and enjoy uh, uh, life. And uh, we'll catch up again real soon. On the phone, we have Larry Kudlow. How are you, Larry? Yes, John. Mr. Kudlow, I want to play this cut for you and get your reaction. So we have a rhetorical question. What in God's name would the Americans give up the progress we've made for the chaos they're suggesting? I don't get it. That's why the MAGA Republicans deliberately choose to inflict this kind of pain on the American people. Why? Why? This nation has gone through too much. We've come too far to let that happen. I will not let it happen. Not on my watch. I will veto everything they send us. Larry. Is he right? Is it unleashing chaos and catastrophe across our nation? Across our nation? Well, I don't really know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> nor, does, nor does he, Larry. Nor does he. I mean, uh, it's a very bizarre quote. You know, all week long, he's been out there accusing Republicans, House Republicans, of uh, destroying Social Security and destroying Medicare and defaulting on our government debt. And every one of those things is just a big lie. He keeps repeating it. I mean, I had Kevin McCarthy on the show, uh, House Speaker. I had number two guy, Steve Scalise, Majority Leader. And I asked them directly. I said, uh, are you going to destroy Social Security? Are you going to cut down Medicare? Are you going to default on the debt? And they both said, no, absolutely not. So Biden is using these sort of authoritarian tactics of a big lie just because Republicans would like to curtail spending and stop the debt from rising uh, any faster than it already has. I mean, Biden has spent six trillion dollars. Look, the economy numbers came out this week. And for the year, you had one percent economic growth and you had six and a half, seven percent inflation, the highest in four decades. The one percent growth was the lowest since the financial meltdown. So I would say that he's touting a big triumph. And, you know, I think I think the whole country wants to see a slowdown 
in federal spending and debt creation. And Biden doesn't even he doesn't even want to talk about it. All he does is lie about what the GOP is saying. So I think this is a kind of bizarre uh, tactic he's using, particularly because, let's face it, his opinion polls are sinking once again because of the classified documents uh, scandal that he's gotten himself involved with. So it's all a bunch of baloney. It's all a bunch of malarkey. Larry, Ed Cox here. We just had Grover Norquist on, and he was talking about 2011 when uh, same kind of thing. Uh, they're they're uh, coming up to the uh, debt ceiling, and uh, there actually was good negotiations, and the things got done, and the budget got cut because we had just won a big majority in the House of Representatives. Yep. Now, I mean, that's right. Grover's correct. Look, you got, you know, like Kevin Hassett would like to see some kind of formulaic response like three dollars of spending cuts for every dollar of debt increase all right i think in the john boehner period that you mentioned 2011 it was a one for one but something like that is going to happen that's what the house wants you can't pass budgets unless the house passes the budget and at some point biden's going to have to stop this big lie idea and just sit down and negotiate the fact that he won't do it now I, I think it's too bad. But again, I, I just really object to this old Democratic saw that, yo, you're going to break Social Security, you're going to break Medicare, you're going to default on the debt. It is not true. The operative uh, phrase, I thought, from what the president said was four words. I don't get it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, he will barely acknowledge that the GOP has taken the House and that the game has changed. But don't you think and that's think politics? That's, don't you think that's, you know, of course he's going to do that? Well, well, it's all politics. The yeah. question is, is it good politics or is it bad politics, stupid yeah. politics? And I don't think, uh, you know, he's in no position right now. I mean, there's a lot of people that feel that his own party is walking away from him on these classified documents, for example. I mean, there's a whole school of thought that says that the leaks on the, you know, they tried to hold the documents back. The White House and the Justice Department didn't want the public to know. It leaked out. There's a whole school of thought that says basically it was people inside the White House who want to get rid of Biden who leaked hmm. the documents. All right. I'm not smart enough to know the answer, but I can tell you this. This Democratic blather that Republicans are going to destroy the big entitlements. They've tried this before. This is a long story. It will not work. With us today is Dick Morris. And Dick Morris, uh, friends with uh, President Donald Trump, friends with, with uh, former President Bill Clinton, and uh, one smart guy, and he's got his ears to the ground in Washington. Dick Morris, what the heck is going on? There's a new finding that, that, that uh, John McLaughlin, who does polling with me, did Trump's polling, has discovered, which blew me away. Joe Biden can be defeated in a Democratic nomination. And he had Biden at 25, only 25% of the vote. Michelle Obama at 15, Bruce Jedge at 8, and then 20 other candidates, 7 or less. Where's our candidate Hillary? But when an incumbent president can't get more than 25% of the primary vote in his own party, I mean, that, that's near death. I mean, that guy is so incredibly vulnerable. You'd think he'd be at 40 or 50 at the least. And um, that means that pretty much anybody that breathes on him can knock him over. And uh, I think that this is going to, 
I guess I, this information is going to get out because we're going to publish it. And Dick Morris, tell us about uh, uh, all the classified documents. Uh, even Jimmy Carter says he has them. And even uh, Mike Pence says he has them. How does it affect the overall situation? I think it really affects Biden. It goes way beyond that he has classified documents. Those docs are from his period as vice president. And it's easy to see that what might have happened here is Biden might have brought those docs home. Hunter might have seen them and used them as the basis for his pitch to Burisma to make $11 million and then turned around and paid his dad 50000 a month in rent. So, Well, that didn't make any sense because the price for a home like that in that area is like 5000 at the most or something. What do you hear about that? Well, it's five thousand for the house and forty-five for the bride, and and or sharing the fruits of the bride, and it just is such a neat package that if the house can house investigators can prove it at a hearing, and I think they will be able to, uh, it'll knock Biden out of the race uh, because it, it, he's caught red-handed. Um, he's in for to this fifty thousand a month. That is, you said, is not justified by the real estate. And yes. in addition to that, the way Biden got the way he got the client in Ukraine is that he used classified information about the United States government's policy toward the Ukraine that his father, the vice president, brought home. He read, and then he used it to pitch the Ukrainians. I think that that's going to be absolutely the end of it for Biden. Gotcha. And you're going to be on noontime Sunday on WABC. Radio.com, 770 on your dial, and on your iPhone, 70, yep, 77 WABC. I'm going to be sure to be listening to you because I want to hear the rest of this story. You know, it's funny, Kat, when you say that, that I'll be on WABC 77. You know, I grew up with that. It's been the radio station in town. And when I hear that I'm going to be on, I can hardly believe it, you know? Well, hey, do you think I believe it? Me and you grew up together. Me and you grew up together. You think I believe it? It's like saying you'll be on the Walter Cronkite show. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable. Every Sunday morning, we'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Bruno. He's your numero uno.